The Lord is exalted, for He dwells on high. He will fill Zion with justice and righteousness. And He will be the stability of our times. Abundance of salvation, wisdom, and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is Zion's treasure. Do you believe it? Is it true? Is He worthy? Amen. He is worthy. Thank you, Hope, for leading us in that those wonderful songs. And I, I noticed that the songs kind of had a theme about disappointment, unfulfilled dreams. But God is still good, isn't He? We believe it. Last week, Jim asked a big question. Are we living in the last days? Well, I think all of us would say, well, the answer is, of course we are. And it, the last days started when Jesus said we're in the last days. But for us who are used to things happening pretty rapidly, and we get upset when they don't, it's hard for us to grasp the fact that God is not on our time schedule. He doesn't seem to be in a big hurry let alone any kind of a hurry. He's just working methodically through history. But we get antsy. God doesn't. But thankfully, He's told us why He is not in a hurry. And Peter tells us that. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. He has made a promise he has said Jesus is coming back, and He's not slow in keeping that promise. He's slow as far as we're concerned, but not of His concern. So the Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. We can be thankful for that. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. God is slow by our timetable. And the reason is He's waiting for His kingdom to be filled. But as we late wait for that last day, and we keep our eyes open for the signs that indicate that day is approaching, we're to be busy doing His business and part of that is just doing the simple business of life faithfully. We've heard it said, I've heard it said anyway, that we should live every day as if it were our last. That's a nice, pious-sounding statement. But I contend that it's not very practical and it's not even possible unless we know when that last day finally arrives. We live each day in anticipation of the next day. We live today because we believe that there will be a tomorrow. There will be a Tuesday, a Wednesday, a next week, a next month, and so on. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, Verse 25, therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life, 
What you will eat or drink or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? It's a question. It's interesting that a few translations read, take no thought or give no thought about those things. And in my mind, that gives the impression I'm not even supposed to think about what I'm going to wear. I'm not even supposed to think about what's for lunch. But I do. We all do. But then in chapter 24 of Matthew, Jesus warns us about against being deceived. He says to watch out. Keep our eyes open. Looking ahead for what may come that will cause us to be deceived or to stumble. So we have to pay attention to those things. So how can it be both? Don't give no, give no thought for tomorrow. Tomorrow has enough worries of its own. It'll take care of itself. But what was Jesus saying? Jim last week read that passage from Matthew 24, and all of those signs that Jesus gave, which he, he told that over 2,000 years ago, so we're still waiting. But Scripture says, he says, these are birth pangs. These are the, the, the indications that something big is going to happen. And nobody knows exactly when. So the day and the hour are unknown, Jesus said. And so we're just supposed to go off and just live a merry life, eat, drink, and be merry. And don't worry about tomorrow. That's not what Jesus was saying, of course. He says, watch out so that when that, when that day does come, you're not unprepared. So we're to, have, we're to live each day that God gives us as if there will be a tomorrow, there will be a next year, on and on time goes. If we don't, there's no point in me going to see Dr. David and have my prescriptions filled. Why bother, right? Why bother eating healthy or why bother, bother preparing for my children's education or retirement or when you're old and can't do anything anymore. Why bother? Because you live every day like it was your last one, so don't prune your apple trees, right? No, we don't live that way. Jesus says, don't worry about those things. Don't let yourself be consumed about things that you can't control. Worry is when we take all the responsibility upon ourselves and forget that God is our Heavenly Father. He leads us, He guides us, He gives us wisdom and knowledge, and that He is ultimately carrying out for our well-being. But in the meantime, while we wait for that day, we are to live under the influence. We hear that word sometimes, don't we? Impaired this and impaired that. Turn with me, if you have your Bibles this morning, to Ephesians chapter 5. And we've been moving through this book slowly, but we're making some progress. But as we live under the influence, I'll explain what that means. But in Ephesians chapter 5, I'd like to begin by reading in verse 21. And it's interesting that some some Bibles have, you know, they have sections. And verse 21 in some Bibles has it the last verse of a section. Other Bibles have it the first 
of the next section. Well, Paul didn't divide his letter to the Ephesians in sections like that. So it was one, one sentence and then the next sentence, one statement and then the next statement. So we're going to read, start reading in verse 21. And Paul writes this, submitting to one another. Why? Out of reverence for Christ. Don't miss that. We're going to talk about that. Then in verse 2, 22, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Maybe you think that since I'm not a husband or a wife, that doesn't apply to me. But the fact is, submitting to one another does. So this is for everyone. It includes everyone. Now, I don't know about you, but that word submit, when I hear that word, I just get this warm feeling just wells up within me. It just almost makes me melt. It's just so wonderful. Why does it not? We know why. Because it's not part of our human nature. Submitting to someone else irks us. It's not part of our fallen human nature. Maybe it's because of our definition, how we think of that. The actual definition of the Greek word here that Paul uses, it means to be under. Well, that makes sense. Submission is to be under. It goes against our human nature. But we have this idea, maybe it's, it's more of a subjugation. It's like top-down, you know, you'll do it and you'll like it kind of thing. Obedience. What's interesting, I did some poking around the last couple of weeks to see what other people, what other Bible teachers say about submission. And it's interesting, all the dancing. <laughs> Just kind of, you know, don't really want to, eh, we want people to come back and read my blog or go to our website or, you know, we want them to come back to church next Sunday. So we have to be careful how we handle this. Um, I guess I'm probably no different. But I find that a lot of people just talk about, well, what submission isn't? Well, we know it's not this. We know it's not that. Well, what is it? If it's not that and then not that, what actually is it? And I think part of that is because why it can be so upsetting is because of the culture in which we live. We shy away from even bringing it up because The fact is, we don't want people to dislike us or to cancel us because we're too hard and fast on what submission is, I guess. The Greek word, there's Greek word, the Greek word used has different connotations in the context that it's used. In the New Testament, it always involves some sort of hierarchy. But within the context, it can be determined whether the subordination is compulsory, meaning you are required to do it, you have to do it, even if you don't want to do it. That's, you know, the guys that sit along the highway with the lights that flash on top. 
you know, and when you see one, your foot immediately goes off the gas pedal. Okay, we are subject to that. We submit to them because that little piece of paper they can write that has a dollar sign at the bottom. We don't want that. So we do that not voluntarily. It's because of the authority they have. So we submit because we have to submit. That's one, one idea. The other is, is because it's completely voluntary. I do it because I want to do it. In the passage before us, it's purely voluntary. The context, the part of speech that Paul uses, it's a voluntary choice. One way I can attempt at least to describe submission is coming to a mutual understanding. And I had to think a lot about our elders' meetings. You know, Marvin is our chairman this year, and so he comes to that meeting with an agenda. (laughs) Something he wants, he feels that he wants to talk about or other people have given him. We call that an agenda. We don't even really like that name. You know, somebody comes at something with an agenda, that means they have something they want to force on everybody else. But he's the one that, that controls that meeting, and he has a, these are the things we're going to discuss, and then there'll be time to open it up for anything else. The whole point of that group is not so that Marvin has the last say, this is the way it's going to be, and no other way. No, we come to a consensus. We talk about things, we try to work things out, we don't always agree, but we, we come to a consensus. We submit to one another in that, in that setting. Even though, and we agree on things, even though it may not be our preference. That's just part of the way it has to work. It takes wisdom, it takes consideration of others involved, and it also takes submission. Sometimes we all just need to get on board even when it's not our preference. I would rather, to be honest, I'll tell you this, can I say this? Don't take this offense, Jim and Melissa, but Ruth and I talked about it. When I think of this thing at the hospital, it all sounds so wonderful, and I think about all the work. I mean, I don't like work. That's why the church is all tore up out here, right? I don't like that. Dylan did it. I mean, I, what can I tell you? But anyway, so I, I, my mind goes to that. What, what, is, what does it take to accomplish this goal? And we saw that little video clip of Samaritan's Purse and the Christmas Child boxes. I don't know about you, but that moved me to see those children and the exuberant, the excitement and the thankfulness it made me feel awful because children's boxes, Christmas. You know, I have a green face, you know. That's, you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, never mind. Let's move on. So submission is a part of everyday life. It has to be in every relationship for life to work as it should. But let's go back to Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to back up to verse 15. 
Paul writes this. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. As we are being careful in how we live, we give attention to life, we give thought, we deliberately think about certain things, how decisions should be made, what choices should I make, And then Paul writes this in verse 18. He says, Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Paul talks about this because of the very nature of what wine does. I understand that wine was, they took grape juice, they would preserve it, making wine out of it so that it would stay, it wouldn't turn into vinegar, okay? But there's something about wine that has an effect, right? There's alcohol involved. It turns to alcohol, and if it's misused, it can cause drunkenness. Now, what's interesting is Paul uses, he talks about this word debauchery. What is that? It's not a word that we use every day. It's not a word we probably ever use if we're not in church. But debauchery means lewdness and promiscuousness. Hmm. Well, that explains a lot, doesn't it? An alcoholic, or today we don't call them that. We call them someone who has an alcohol use disorder. That makes you feel better, I guess. But they have this strong, often uncontrollable desire for alcohol, the effects of what it does to the human body and mind what it does to our body, the effects that it brings. So Paul uses that illustration as a comparison because of how it affects human behavior. And he says, instead, you know what that's like, instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. Meaning that the Holy Spirit is to have an effect on how we live and think and act. It's to be the controlling factor in our behavior. It should be obvious for any person who claims to be a Christian that the Holy Spirit is influencing our behavior. Just as alcohol consumption is a choice, so being filled with the Spirit, or better, to be continually filled with the Spirit, is also a choice. Let me explain. We believe that upon confession of faith in the Lord Jesus, that the Holy Spirit enters the life of the believer and takes up residence in us. He is present in our lives. He comes in, we've invited him in, and he's he's here. He's active. But how much control I give to him, that's my part. One writer describes it this way. In the original text, we've heard the verse, let me back up. Don't quench the Holy Spirit. Okay, so that word quench, he's talking about this. In the original text, the verb for quench used here speaks of suppressing fire or stifling a flame. The Holy Spirit is like a fire dwelling in each believer. When Paul writes, do not quench the Holy Spirit, he is cautioning Christians not to suppress the fire of God's Spirit that burns within us. 
The Holy Spirit is this inner burning. And I am remembered, reminded of the disciples as they walked to Emmaus after Jesus rose from the dead. And they were going from Jerusalem to Emmaus. And, and they said, well, didn't our hearts burn within us? We heard Jesus speak and there's just... There was just this feeling inside that something is different. This man is different. The Holy Spirit is, we, does that. We look at life differently. You can't quench something that you don't have. You can't quench a fire unless there's a fire to quench. But how often do we think of the Holy Spirit actually residing within us as an invited guest and not as one who just keeps us from getting too far out of line. The guy on the side of the road with the lights on top. You know, well, I'll just keep living and if the Holy Spirit leaves me alone, then I'm good. But as an invited guest, that he's actually living within me. Let me use this illustration. When you have a guest or guests in your home, your home is different. You tend to be quieter, in consideration of your guests, you make sure that they're cared for. You make sure that they have everything they need so that they feel welcome. They feel comfortable in your home and in your presence. Is that how we view the Holy Spirit? Do I live my life? Do I, the things I think about, the things I spend my time doing, do I think of it in light the Holy Spirit is with me? He is my invited guest. Am I quenching him or I'm inviting him to keep that flame burning alive and hot? As believers, we are under the authority of another. And it reminds me of the Roman centurion who understood this when he came to Jesus on behalf of his servant who was suffering terribly. And when Jesus told this Roman centurion, he said, the centurion tells him, my servant is suffering. Jesus says, well, I'll go with you. And the, the, the Roman centurion says, no, 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 no. He hesitated. It wasn't that he was afraid to have Jesus in his home, but because he knew authority. He knew protocol. He understood, because he was a man who had great authority, he understood that there are others who have greater authority, and as he looked at Jesus... He understood that. But there was something else about the centurion that shows submission. This Roman centurion understood the culture that he lived in, that he worked under. He may not have believed or liked this idea that Jews are here and Gentiles, that there's these two separate people and the Jews can have nothing to do with Gentiles and the Gentiles just despise the Jews. We're seeing that today, right? But this man understood that cultural context in which he lived. So he as a Gentile is considerate of that. Jesus is a Jew. It was culturally unacceptable for Jesus as a Jew to go into a Gentile's home. So this Roman centurion, a man of great authority, didn't demand that Jesus come. No, you've got to come to my house. I won't have it any... No, no, no. He said, I understand completely. All you need to do is just say the word. That, that's it. You don't have to come to my house. I find that interesting about this man. 
because he understood the big picture. He did not want to do anything that would cause trouble for Jesus. And neither did he want to cause anything that would cause trouble for himself, his reputation or Jesus' reputation. So in our context this morning, we could translate verse 21, submitting to one another, as submitting to others according to the authority and order established by God. God has instituted a hierarchy, a system that makes life work. It's just, he did it, that's what he chose, and that's how it has to be. And then Paul gives us examples on how this looks in real life in the closest of all relationships. Wives, submit to your own husbands. It's simple, right? That's not hard to grasp. But it's not easy, you say. I can't understand why, but anyway, it's, it's not easy. But how does that look? Well, Paul helps us. He says, as to the Lord. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Ooh. But Paul doesn't know my husband. <laughs> You're right. Paul didn't know, doesn't know your husband. But God does. And we'll get to your husband shortly. I wonder as we look around us at what And I like how Todd defined this on Wednesday night. Just in passing, he said he talked about the church, little c. I like that. There's the church, Christ's church, capital C. But there's also a church, little c. It reminds me of, the I think, the National Council of Churches. You know, they don't think much of what God said. Well, then why do you call yourself a church? I mean, anyway. So there's the church large C for whom Christ died, and we'll see that in a minute. But there's also the church small C that really doesn't want anything to do with him. But they still call themselves the church. Now we're talking about the church out there, of course, not, not us. So don't, don't take this too personal. But I just wonder of those in the church, small C, large small C, let's go that way. Of the marriages that are failing, and we know the statistics, they're rising, it's it's horrific. Could it be because there is a lack of submission to Christ? And if there's a lack of submission to Christ, there's going to be a lack of submission in a marriage, and nothing's going to go right. It's the natural consequences of everything. It's the thing that keeps a marriage and families together is that mutual submission to one another. It keeps us together and it keeps us thriving. Paul is simply laying out God's established order of how things work and how they work well. Now, you wives are not forced to submit. I like the phrase, you'll do it and you'll like it. I say that, you know, in jest, but... I guess I've told my kids that. I can force them to do something, but I can't force them to like it, right? It's a voluntary choice as you submit to Christ. You can't submit to your husband if you haven't submitted to Christ. It isn't going to work. Now, each marriage is unique because each husband is 
special, <laughs> and each wife is specialer. Is that a word? Because each person is different. So you bring two different people together, and it's going to, our marriage is going to look different than yours. So we can't say it's, they're, they're not cookie cutter, I guess we would say. So you have to figure out how it works for you as you submit to Christ. Now, each marriage being unique, but that doesn't mean that you as a wife are just supposed to sit quietly and do your work, whatever's on the list for you to do that day. And then if you want to raise an opinion or a question, you have to raise your hand to speak. Okay? That's not the way it's supposed to be. Well, this week, I ran across something, and as Dylan and I were working, I, I asked him about it, I told him, and I said, would that be something that, uh, that I could share with the whole congregation? And, yeah, probably. So how's that for a lead-in? <laughs> I'll blame it on Dylan. There was a couple who felt a need to get some outside help to make their relationship better. So they went to see a marriage counselor. And after sharing their story, the counselor turned to the husband and asked, Is it true that you haven't spoken to your wife in two years? And he said, Yes. Why? Because I didn't want to interrupt. Dylan? You as a wife have been given by God as a suitable helper to your husband. That not, doesn't mean that you are less valuable. You're probably more valuable because obviously God felt that the husband needs help. You and he are to be one in flesh and purpose as to Christ. It all revolves around Him as to Christ. There are some things that are going to be hard in life that Christ asks of us that we don't particularly like. When we read them in Scripture, we really don't like those things. But we know that He has our best good at heart. And because we love Him, we obey. So wives, as you, you have to figure out, how can I submit to my husband? Because your husband isn't perfect. Don't tell them that. But they're not perfect. And remember, you're not perfect either. We live in these fallen bodies with our, our human nature that still flares up at times. But remember, we're to do it as to Christ. And now verse 25. Husbands, are you ready? It says, husbands, love your wives. That's simple, right? <laughs> but it's not easy, always. But how does that look? Well, Paul helps us also. As Christ loved the church. So, how did Christ love the church? Big C. 
He gave himself up for her. But Paul doesn't know my wife. Paul doesn't know your wife. But God does, and that's what matters. Notice that Paul uses the word loved, past tense. Does not God love the church now? Does Christ not love the church now? Of course he does. But he's speaking of his greatest sacrifice, his ultimate sacrifice of giving his life for the church. So husbands, we are to give our lives, our lives sacrificially for our wives. Jesus did it for his bride. Now, can I say that I do? No. And I doubt that you can either. But we're working on it. Slowly. Loving our wives is more than just keeping food in the refrigerator and bread in the drawer and taking out the trash. It's more than that. It's giving your life for her. Now, maybe you're one of those who would like when you walk in the front door after a hard day's work that she meets you at the door and the cup of coffee in hand and your slippers. And she said, oh, honey, come in. You look like you're tired. You've had a rough day. Come in and sit in the recliner and I'll, I'll, I'll get you. You know, we can sit. Just tell me about your day. That happens all the time, right? No, it doesn't. Why not? Well, because she had a hard day too, didn't she? Maybe harder because she was taking care of your kids. You can get your own slippers. I mean, she doesn't say that. I'm telling you that. Get your own slippers and why don't you grab hers as well? When you give your life, you don't walk in the door and think about, oh, I've just... I can't say that I do this, okay? And she would verify that, Ruth would. But to think about the other person, mutually submissive to one another, doesn't mean I do everything she tells me and that she does everything I tell her. We have to work this out together. But note, here's one thing for you husbands. This is interesting. Paul uses nine verses to talk about husbands and three to talk about wives. But what was Christ's purpose for giving himself, giving his life for his bride? Paul says to sanctify her, to cleanse her, and therefore to present her as a pure, spotless bride to himself. The goal is for her benefit. And when she benefits, he benefits. When your wife is blessed, you are blessed. When she benefits, you benefit. Now, of course, we husbands can't sanctify our wives or, or wash our wives' sins away. We can't do that. But we have within us the power to do everything we can to bring her closer to the Heavenly Father in holiness. How we react to her, how we act, how we respond, how we love her makes it much easier for her to submit to her heavenly Father, and therefore to us. Then in verses 28 through 30, Paul reiterates our calling to sacrificial love, comparing 
how we love our own body. As a, he's talking to husbands. As I love my own body, I am to love my wife similarly. I recall a time some years ago, a young man uh, that came occasionally. We were the men's group was sitting there on a Wednesday night, and he came stomping angrily through the, sang- through the foyer heading outside, his head down, and he was... He wasn't having a very good evening. I'll just put it that way. And I will never forget his, his, what he was saying. I hate my life. I hate my life. I hate my life. I've used that a lot. I hate my life. I hate my life. I hate my life. You may hate your life, but you don't hate your body. That hit me. I would never go without a meal because, well, I'm just going <clears> to, <throat> I don't like my body. No, we never do that. We may hate our life, all that other stuff, but we don't hate our body. We take care of it. As Paul says, no one hates his own body, but he cares for it. That is how it is to be for a husband, to care for his wife and his family like that, sacrificially. And then verse 31, and this may seem kind of strange. It kind of jumped out at me. Therefore, as a result, because of A man should leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's interesting, in our Sunday school class, in Mark, Jesus said that. And Paul is quoting Jesus. A man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall be one, become one flesh. That is a choice. It's not a given. I think there are lots of marriages, lots of people who get married where you have two individuals that are just trying to get along with one another. They never come together as one flesh. I'm not talking only physically, but this is heart, mind, and soul, desires, life, purpose, all of that. Two people trying to live as individuals, it's not going to work. And I think that's why we have so much trouble in our world, is people refuse to become one. Now, a man shall leave his father and mother. Men, husbands, your mama ain't your leading lady, okay? Your mother hopefully likes you. And she may even think you're special. And you're the best thing since sliced bread. I'm telling you, you probably aren't. But she is your mother. She gave you birth, yes. Gave you life. You are to honor and respect her, but you are to leave her and cleave to your wife. If there's ever a disagreement between you and your wife, your mother is not the one to go to. All right? You said on that day, the day you were married, that you would. You would leave your father and mother and that you would cleave to your wife. And if you want God's blessing in your life, you better do it. Because you made a promise. And He'll hold you to it. Okay, wow. Everybody take a deep breath. And stand up. I'm going to do something really, really weird. All right? I'll just tell you right up front. Ruth, can you come up here? If you were standing beside your husband,
husband or wife, and a lot of you aren't, but those of you that are, and the others can just tune out and think what's for lunch. But I want you to take your spouse's hand in yours, okay, if you have one beside you. Don't just pick anyone. Unless everybody, clo- everybody close your eyes, okay? That, that might help. Won't be so uncomfortable. But, but husbands will start with you, with us. If you're like me, you have not always loved your wife the way Christ loves and loved the church. So I'm going to make a statement. And if you agree with that, then squeeze your wife's hand. Or she'll maybe squeeze yours, if you're lucky. Honey, I have not always been the husband that I want to be. I have not always loved you as the way Christ loves His church. Will you forgive me? And here's where the wife has to either squeeze your hand or not. Mine did. (laughs) Now wives. Honey, I have not always been submissive to you and treated you as God wants me to. Will you forgive me? Husbands, you better squeeze her hand. Let's pray. Father, I don't know why you love us, but you have chosen to do so. And Father, you sent Jesus into this world. He took on flesh. He left heaven And heaven will never be the same because of that choice. But because of His choice, we have the opportunity to join you in perfection someday. Father, we're all living under the influence of something in this life. Whether it's our own flesh, our own desires, outside forces, or we're living under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Father, this morning I pray for us as husbands, for us as wives, for us as children, for us as brothers, as sisters, as uncles and aunts and cousins and neighbors and friends and acquaintances, that we will choose to live under the influence of your Holy Spirit in everything we say, everything we do, every look, every everything, that we would reflect your love for us to others, that your kingdom may grow, that your name may be honored throughout this earth. Thank you, Father, what you have done. We love you. We honor you. We praise you. And we ask again, we beg you, that your Holy Spirit, that fire within us, will continue to burn. Sometimes it's just a smolder, but that's we want you to fan it into flames. Lord, so help us. Give us wisdom and strength for the honor and glory of the Lord Jesus. And everyone said,
Amen. And you are dismissed.